You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato. And today we have a very special guest with us uh, by the name of Brian Bradley. And Brian is going to talk to us today. He's a leading educator and nationally recognized asset asset protection attorney for high-risk professionals, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and ultra-high net worth families. And I wanted to have him on the show because he was selected to the Best Attorneys of America list in 2020 and other various distinction lists and um, you know, high stake litigators lists. And he focuses primarily on um, asset protection. And we're going to talk about asset protection from not just the standpoint of an LLC, but a lot of other topics, you know, um, as it relates to different types of trusts and jurisdiction and kind of the cultural shifts in the legal system um, that we're seeing in, in 2020. So, and probably even before that. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Anthony, for having me on and putting the podcast together. And, you know, it is an important topic. And I hope that the concepts and theories that we talk about help your listeners like understand the overall scope of asset protection and different tools. And, you know, I'm definitely going to be blowing up a lot of the status quo and misconceptions, especially when it comes down to, you know, LLCs and where insurance plays into it and and these asset protection trusts that most people probably never even heard about. Um, So I just look forward to, you know, educating how I can. Great. So why don't we start out with what's asset protection and why does it matter for real estate investors, whether they're on the active side or on the passive side? Yeah. And so, like you said, I'm an asset protection attorney and I got into it from actually the litigation and trial side, you know, of the law and having clients being sued and their lives just wrecked and turned upside down, you know, and having a false sense of security and thinking that they were protected because they had insurance or they had a revocable living trust. And it turns out, you know, their insurance didn't want to pay their claim, especially for large claims or the revocable living trust actually served no purpose to actually protect them because they can't, they're not designed to. Um, And then just by working in the legal field and in court, the legal system's broken. It's not about justice any longer. It's simply we're a sue happy Nirvana. You know, we have more than 40 million lawsuits filed in the U.S. every year and something about 99% of all lawsuits of the world are filed here in the U.S. And so we're simply in, the, you know, a $300 billion litigation business is what, you know, the U.S. has turned into. And so what we do is provide peace of mind for clients, you know, and we do this through the overall goal of lifestyle preservation. That's really what a person is asking for when they call in and say, Hey, I have some assets. I have a high risk profession. I want to protect my assets. What they're saying is I just want some peace of mind and a stress-free life. Um, The sad thing is we can't really do anything to stop you from being sued, but what we can do is, you know, worry about how collectible you are. Um, and we do this through the different uses of LLCs, LPs, and you know, bridge trusts and quantum trusts and different types of asset protection trust. And more specifically, like you're like, what is asset protection? And it isn't traditional estate planning. You know, it's modern estate planning, fighting modern attacks on wealth. Um, what we're doing is placing a legal barrier between your assets and your potential creditors, you know, before it's needed. Everything that you want to do on an asset protection standpoint has to be done before you're being sued. 
that's it. It's just like a barrier, like a safe for your gold and your guns, your watches or other valuables. Anything of value you want to put behind the legal barrier and out of your personal name so that it's not easily attached with the lien or reached. And then depending on the level and the sliding scale of your risk and your assets and your net worth, there's different levels and combinations of, you know, LLCs versus management companies, asset protection trust, and how we put the combination of them all together. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, can we talk a little bit more about, you know, you know, kind of like piercing the veil and that notion and, you know, that's obviously what you're um, trying to plan to mitigate that risk because I've seen a lot of, you know, potential pierce the veil cases, um, you know, when, you know, whoever it is, creditors or contractor yeah. liens or, you know, whatever the case may be coming after high net worth individuals, even if the case is fraudulent, um, they always try to pierce the veil, um, and a lot of times it, it doesn't work. So how are you able to mitigate those risks for real estate investors? And um, you know, how do you, how do you layer on, you know, additional security? Yeah, great question. And I think that's one of the biggest, you know, misconceptions is just, you know, how strong is an LLC really? And honestly, any lawyer coming out who passed the bar in the first year can easily make a piercing the corporate veil argument, especially depending if you're a California resident or some of these really unfriendly, unfriendly states. LLCs are just foundational starting points, you know, just like insurance. Um, I think the best way to conceptualize an asset protection system and where LLCs fall into place is to think about winter. You know, when it comes to asset protection, there's different layers. You know, I'm from the mountains in Lake Tahoe. I also, you know, lived in Michigan. It's really cold out there and we learned to dress in layers. You know, your first layer is going to be on your skin. It's going to be generally of like merino wool and then you're going to have a mid layer, which is a little bit thicker. It's going to be kind of made out of synthetics or wool. And then you have an outer shell waterproof layer, and that's going to be keeping you nice and dry and warm when the weather's really cold and bad outside. But by layering, you're now more flexible. You know, like when it gets really hot and you're skiing, you know, you can take the outer layer off. You can take the inner layer off. You can take the mid layer off. You can adjust to make yourself more comfortable. The same thing applies with your asset protection. You know, the base layer, the foundational layer is an LLC. And that's going to be holding, for example, your real estate, your mid layer is going to be a holding or operating company. And this is in this mid layer where you actually really do want to have strong states like Arizona, Nevada, Wyoming, and Delaware for that mid layer. Um, and those base layer LLCs are going to all be single member LLCs. Um, especially if you're owning real estate, because then if you combine it with a limited partnership, that mid layer, it helps to do a tax filings. And when we add that mid layer, because all, all those, you know, LLCs are going to have K ones. You don't want to have 15 LLCs with 15 K ones to file. So all those LLCs will flow straight through directly through to the management company. So it's only one tax filing instead of 15 different tax filings. But the problem kind of what you're hinting at is, that most clients come to me with 15 LLCs and they're all single member LLCs and they're all in the client's personal name as the member. The problem is that modern courts have a tendency to disregard single member LLCs. You know, they're basically worthless now. What you want is a single member LLC that's holding your real estate to then be held and owned by a multi-member limited partnership. By doing this, you're now doing your, a proper layering stack. 
and you're taking away the legal argument of piercing the corporate veil that you just mentioned. And so I'm okay with the single member LLC as a foundational starting level, um, as long as it's owned by that mid-layer multi-member asset management limited partnership, not you personally. But that's where most people mess up on because they go to their CPA and they set these up for tax purposes. They don't think about asset protection until later on down the line. And then this works best when you add your outer weather shell layer, that, you know, like a bridge trust or some other trust. Um, but when you're talking about piercing the corporate veil, you're talking about charging orders. This is what really we're talking about. People really do have a lot of confusion on where to set up LLCs. And you hear about Delaware, Wyoming, Texas, Nevada, and you hear about these states like they're really good about protecting their LLCs. Um, well, I better just go and set one up there because I heard about it on the internet or I heard about it from my CPA. Well, it really comes down to an issue of just what are you holding? So let's say, for example, it's California real estate that you're holding and you're holding it in a Wyoming LLC because your CPA told you or you read it on the internet. Then you go and you hold a piece of California real estate in that Wyoming LLC. You're paying California franchise tax. You're like, what have you just done? What you've done is just converted your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in that state. You know, you're paying franchise tax in that state. The asset you're protecting is in that state. That's where the lawsuit's going to come if you're sued. That's the state laws that are going to apply. So, you know, no judge in California or any other state is going to care that your LLCs in Wyoming or Delaware, if the assets not in that state, you can't just take state laws with you to other states, especially when you're being sued. So that's one of the really big misconceptions is you created a Wyoming LLC. Well, that's not going to benefit you for an out of state property. And so what we recommend is always create an LLC in the state where the asset is at. Right. And that's, and that's, you know, kind of, um, misdirects, redirects any misconceptions real estate investors have because they're always thinking about it from a, a tax perspective, which is a fair game too. But, um, for the reasons you just mentioned, you know, jurisdictional reasons, um, it's the, what we do is, yeah, that's, that's generally what we do. LLCs. For, yeah. And I see this um, big, each property. Yeah. Where, and the main problem I see yeah. is new investors are, create one LLC for tax purposes. And then next thing you know, they put a Florida, uh, you know, property in there and a California property and an Oregon property, you know, like they, they start mixing jurisdictional assets in there. Well, what happens if one property blows up? Like we can't stop an asset from blowing up. You know, you don't want to have the assets that aren't causing a problem affected by another asset in another state and especially by that other state's laws. So that's the reason of why you one, you don't want to convert that out-of-state LLC into another one. Um, so you just separate out the assets into, you know, their individual LLCs of the states that the assets are in. And then when you add a second layer of protection, the mid-layer, the limited partnership to own those LLCs, and then that simplifies the tax filing. So you're still only filing one tax return. And then the asset protection trust owns that limited partnership. You're the managing member of, you know, the limited partnership. And then you're the beneficiary of the asset protection trust. Got it. So at what stage in the process should real estate investors reach out to you? Is, you know, early on or? Yeah. Well, that's what, a great, know, what if they want to. Great question. So we, what if they want to amend their, you know, yeah. um, operating agreements and change the states? 
How do they go about that? So we work with clients from the whole spectrum. Like our firm does focus on real estate investors and um, high-risk professionals like doctors um, who are also investing, you know, in real estate. Um, but this is something that you should be thinking of and planning out right from the, from the get-go. The first time you own one piece of asset that can hurt somebody you need insurance on and has a key and can go boom. Um, you should know the different scales and the different levels. Start with an LLC and insurance. If you were to call us and you're just starting out, I'm not going to sell you the Taj Mahal Bridge Trust for $30,000. That's a ridiculous waste of money. What you should be starting out with when you're just starting out and your also business liability is small, an LLC, have insurance. Then as you grow and you hit kind of that, you know, $500,000 net worth mark, then we start talking about an asset management limited partnership to simplify your taxes at a second level layer of protection. And then when you hit about 1 million net worth is where we have the conversation of you need to have the bridge trust. And, you know, the great thing is with a bridge trust, when it comes to jurisdiction is, you know, where do we set up these trusts and asset protection trusts? You know, you can set them up in two places. You can set them up offshore purely in the Cook Islands or some other country. Um, or you can set them up here domestically. And there's pros and cons to both. If you were to set one up purely offshore, I mean, that's the strongest you can get. For a little historical context, these you know, asset protection trusts, the foreign asset protection trust came about in 1984, started in the Cook Islands. Um, they're the strongest that you can have. They are the global gold standard in the world. You'd have to prove a case beyond you know, a reasonable doubt, the murder standard. You'd have to file the lawsuit within one year of statute of limitations in the Cook Islands. If you lose, you pay. And most likely if you're proving case beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, you're not gonna prove that case. Um, there's a lot of statutory hurdles. You can't take your US attorneys with you. You have to front all the court costs. You have to fly in a judge from New Zealand. The problem though, even though there's all that strength is to be purely foreign, it's really expensive. You're generally talking 50 to $100,000. So then about 10 years later, the US followed suit with Alaska, you know, of all places creating the first domestic asset protection trust. Then, you know, Delaware, Nevada had to follow suit. So we have about 20 states domestically that you can create a domestic asset protection trust in. The problem is, let's say you're a California resident. California doesn't recognize domestic asset protection trust. They don't have one on statute, just like they don't have series LLC legislation. So California, if you were a California resident and went to Nevada, get a Nevada asset protection trust and Kilker versus Steelman 2012, they said, well, hey, we don't care that it's a Nevada asset protection trust. You're not a resident of Nevada. You're a resident of California. So we're not going to recognize them. And so what you have is a weak asset protection trust that people are paying for that they think they're getting protection from, but they're really not. Um, but it's cheaper on costs and maintenance fees. And so there's a third type of asset protection trust called a bridge trust. And what it does is it combines the best of both worlds. It combines the strength of offshore protection of the Cook Islands, and it provides, but that bridge trust is classified by the IRS as a domestic asset protection trust. And so what that means is it's cheaper to start you're talking about 20, like $29,000 on average, cheaper to maintain about $2,100 annual maintenance fee. The IRS classifies it as a domestic asset protection trust. So there's no tax filings on that trust because it's a domestic trust, but you have in your back pocket statutory non-recognition with the Cook Islands. And then if you are sued, we can pull the trigger, exercise the migration clause, transfer your equity and your assets to the Cook Islands. 
and then force creditors and lawsuits to go away because those judgments just won't be recognized. So it's the benefit of both worlds. You get offshore protection at a cheaper entry rate, and you really only want to be offshore if and when you need it. Otherwise, it's just overkill. But you want that tool in the toolbox in the back pocket when you become a higher net worth investor. Right. And so so if you could kind of give an example for in the, you know, that's multifamily real estate industry for when, you know, someone does achieve that certain network status and they do want to set up those, um, I guess, bridge trusts. Could you kind of give examples where, you know, uh, you said, you know, uh, creditors or yeah. um, whoever the, the um, debtors are trying to collect and that there's been instances where, you know, like you said, they, they have no jurisdiction over there and they're not able to really yeah, so there's really come after. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's these these trusts have been in existence for over 40 years. Like that's the great thing about okay. it. Lots and lots of case law over 40 years worth of it. The reason these foreign asset protection trusts are so strong is because of statutory non-recognition. So we have the Anderson case, the Grant case, like and these were really horrific cases where, you know, one was setting up a Ponzi scheme, the Anderson case and stuffed money, you know, offshore tens of millions of dollars and this was the government, the IRS coming after that, you know, the, the government suing them, coming after them. They couldn't get access to the money. The Cook Islands court even said like, hey, we're sorry, but, you know, our whole legal system is set up to protect assets from here. We're not recognizing it. The money was sitting there safe. The Grant case, you know, the husband, he uh, stiffed the, you know, government for $36 million, put it in an offshore account, died. And then the IRS came after uh, the wife for the back taxes and the money was sitting there safe. They couldn't get access to it. Um, you know, we personally, you know, there's a 5 million judgment. So an actual judgment that settled for under $200,000 because the system with an offshore component is just so strong. So you forced a judgment for $5 million to settle for $200,000 because the creditors couldn't get access to an exercise judgment. You know, a $75 million personal loan suit where we were, you know, you're personally guaranteeing to pay back $75 million and that ended up being forced to settle for $5 million with payments spaced out over a bunch of years. $32 million bank loan dispute that settled for $2.5 million. Uh, you know, and when you're investing in real estate, you know, depending on how many units have, you got, you know, pools are very dangerous, um, you know, slip and falls, you know, fires, carbon monoxide issue. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that you can get sued. Mold is always a really big one. Um, and so these trusts, even against judgments, have just historically proven to hold up versus LLCs. You know, they say it in the name, limited, limited liability company. There's only so much that they're going to protect you for. They work as a foundation. You just have to start building up on that foundation as you go along. So can you talk about the preconceived notion that a lot of active real estate investors have, even if it's on a smaller property that they think that just by, let's say they own a four family yeah. building, right? They think that putting that, even if they can put it in an LLC, and most of the times they can't, um, they have to use a quick claim mm -hmm. deed, which a lot of times, you know, Freddie and Fannie Mac don't recognize um, in the one to four space. But like, you know, even on that small of a scale, what benefit would they have to create an LLC? Because it's personally guaranteed anyway. Um, you know, is there is there any benefit in the smaller investors? Absolutely, um, because there's liability. Set that yeah, up? there's liability from every aspect of your life, driving your car. What's your other business that you have? Where's your liability coming from there? 
it's not just a personal loan guarantee of you messing up as a real estate investor. It's also what other creditors can come after you, just like giving your kids the keys to your car, giving your car, you know, to your neighbor who ended up having, a, you know, one too many beers and T-boning somebody and killing them. Um, like sure. You hear these stories all but the time. So you just need to look at, it's always not the things you plan for. Like, honestly, that wipe you out. It's the negligent things and the things you don't think about and the things that you don't plan for that end up coming back and biting you. So you got to protect yourself from those also, right. and especially when you're starting out. That's when in the, in the real estate world and any business venture, that's when you're going to create the most amount of errors and the most mistakes because you have a higher learning curve. So you're going to be messing up a lot. Sure. I've heard the counter argument, whereas I have investors that approach me and I'm on your side, but I've had other investors that approach me and say, well, I'm just going to take out a $20 million umbrella policy and that should cover oh. me because that's going to be cheaper than, <laughs> that's going to be cheaper than filing the annual fees that you just spoke about with. So the here's the, yeah. And so I don't care if it's an umbrella policy and I don't care if it's not like, here's the thing with, and you got to have insurance. Insurance is important, you know, but read your insurance policy, read the fine print and understand what's not covered and what is covered and understand how insurance works as a business and in insurance law. And so just keep in mind that, you know, insurance companies don't cover you for fraud, punitive damages or intentional wrongdoings. You know, they don't pay claims that are quote unquote, the direct result of your unlawful acts, even if they're negligent. And so what your listeners need to understand is the basic concepts of insurance defense, you know, like, and that is that you can be sued. And from the very first statement or communication, or even an email you made with a buyer or a seller at any point, those lawsuits are going to be based on allegations of fraud. They're always going to end up putting that in the lawsuit and the courts are going to look at those statements. Like for example, you sent an email saying the plumbing was done, you know, and the courts are going to say, well, that's an email. That's a statement. Statements are intentional acts. And so they're going to consider this now an intentional act simply because of a writing. And so what your insurance provider's legal team is going to now do is going to say, well, we're not going to cover you in a case where you potentially did some wrongdoing. And if you disagree with us, go ahead and sue us. And that's the same thing for an umbrella policy. So if you think that your insurance policy is going to cover you, if you walked out and punched your neighbor in the face, that's not going to happen. Like, so that's what you need to understand the weakness of insurances. They're great. You got to have it for small things. But when you're talking about, you know, a big claim, their job is to create as much legal separation distance from you as possible and then force you to sue them. Got it. So what are some other strategies as you, you know, you keep growing and growing your net worth. Uh, you talk about the bridge trust. Are there any other ones to shed your liability? as a real estate yeah, investor so and, and also minimize. Yeah. So let's yeah. say you're under I 1 million. So like one, like the best thing, like start, you're under 1 million. Let's say you're even under 500,000 LLC and insurance. Then you're going to grow. Hopefully you're successful. Then you're going to add that mid layer, the limited partnership. Um, that's really good right there as a, as a mid, you know, a foundation in the mid layer right there. Now let's say you have extra liability and you're kind of concerned about losing what you're building. There is a trust called a quantum living trust, and this is specifically designed for people under 1 million in net worth. And what it does is it gives you offshore, um, an offshore component, but that's generally left over like just for the high net worth clients. 
um, at an affordable entry spot. And so for about the cost of a traditional living trust and the asset management limited partnership, you know, like half the cost of a bridge trust, you get access to, you know, the LLC with the limited partnership with an offshore component. The only difference is the quantum living trust isn't fully registered offshore from day one. And so it has to rely off of the um, primary foreign trust for its full offshore protection, but we're creating a sub trust off of that. But that's really good is because when you get into that under 1 million net worth mark, they're the ones that have the highest risk factor of loss. You know, like people above 1 million can generally sustain a large suit. It's going to hurt them, but it won't most likely completely wipe them out. It's going to take them years to rebuild it. That 1 million under net worth mark, this was a missing gap of people's protection system because if you get wiped out and your whole net worth gets wiped out and you have under 1 million, most likely you're not going to recover from that. And so the quantum living trust was a missing piece and component to that level of, of an investor. Right. So it sounds like the earlier you can set up these vehicles, the better off you're going to be long-term. What was that? You broke up on that question. Sorry. It sounds like the earlier you can set up these vehicles, you're going to be better off long-term, even if you're not at that million dollar mark or you're at the exactly. 500. Exactly. And, and one of the below. things is with an asset protection planning and especially asset protection trust is they age like wine. They get better and stronger. And especially if they exist for 10 years before you're ever sued. Now you have one of the, you have literally the strongest asset protection plan in the world um, because California very extreme state for litigation has a 10 year look back period. So let's say we create an asset protection plan with the trust and you're not sued for 10 years. You transfer all those assets into that trust. Then after 10 years, you get sued. There's no fraudulent argument that they can make for, for, to try to get through that for piercing you know, the trust and saying that it was a fraudulent transfer because it vested so long for 10 years before you ever need it. So this isn't planning that you do after you're sued. After you're sued, it's really not much I can do. The only thing I can do is gonna be very, very expensive and it generally is go straight offshore. The earlier you plan these when you're not under attack, when your castle's not being burnt down and, and you know, you're not being sued, the better it is and the courts actually like that because then it's vesting and aging longer. Got it. So besides the, co you know, the cost is definitely a barrier to entry. Um, yeah. You know, especially the upfront cost, the annual cost, I feel like that could be worked out. Um, but the upfront cost, if I'm not mistaken, seems to be pretty significant. Yeah. So like LLCs, you generally would be looking at $1,000 to $1,500 to set up an asset protection LLC. Um, then you're looking at generally six around $6,000 for a limit, you know, a limited partnership and then 23,000 for a bridge trust. You know, like we combine a bridge trust with the management company for 29,000. Um, a quantum living trust is 14,200 for the trust and the AMLP. That's like $8,200 just for the quantum living trust. Um, a lot of this is all ta a tax, tax write-offs because it's not traditional estate planning. It's protecting business assets. So generally we just tell our clients, pay through your business account and then have your CPA write off 100% of this as a business expense. Interesting, that definitely helps stomach the blow for some people. Um, but what other advice do you have while we kind yeah. of uh, wrap up our show here? 
Yeah, I would just say don't wait until it's too late. You know, this stuff really only works when it's preventative. And so you got to budget for it because the last thing you want to do is build, 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 focus on return on investment, you know, capital. And the next thing you know, you're getting hit with the lawsuit unexpectedly out of nowhere and losing it all. So you got to budget for this stuff, just like you have to eventually get to your, you know, revocable living trust. You know, you don't want to die and then have your kids scrounging around fighting for what's what. Um, you got to just plan for the worst, you know, do the best that you can. So, you know, and don't do it yourself. Um, that would be my, you know, two cents on, on that. For sure. There's a lot more that goes into it. I see people try to do it themselves and they, uh, they get over their head and usually what ends up happening is they hire a professional at the end of the day. So, um, so Brian, thank you so much for coming on our show. Um, how can people reach out to you and, find out and learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. You know, I find it, I, I just like the platform, you know, for business and people. Um, they can email me, brian at btblegal.com. They can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. Lots of education and inform, you know, information and videos there. Um, I do free consultations because I don't want people to get hung up on being afraid to talk to a, a professional and an expert for consultation fees, like they should just get access to the education information and have a, you know, risk analysis view. Um, and then just see what we recommend, whether you use us or not, that's great. At least get the, you know, review and make an educated decision and don't be hung up on, you know, consultation costs. Excellent. And we'll provide a link to Brian's website and LinkedIn page in the description section of our iTunes, as well as all on our social media platforms. So Brian, thank you so much for coming on our show today. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.